So next week is Mother's Day. I don't know if any of you guys read our text already for this morning, but this almost fell on Mother's Day. And if you know the story we're about to go through, you can see how ironic that would have been. Because this story, at the end of Genesis 29 and going to the first part of Genesis 30, is actually a really ugly story about two moms who are locked in a bitter rivalry with each other. Two sisters that have become the wives of one man, Jacob. So I'm kind of glad this didn't fall on Mother's Day. But you know what? Even if it had, uh, all of God's word is profitable for us. And I was telling somebody this morning before we started that I was excited about this text um, because the, the teacher part of me gets excited about times when maybe the light bulb goes on and you see something you've never seen before. And I think sometimes we're tempted to read um, passages like this and think, yeah, this is some of the historical details that fits together the important stories and the exciting stories, the ones that maybe we're more familiar with. So I hope that today as we go through this text, that maybe you'll see some things you haven't seen before and that it will encourage you and grow your faith. So really what this story shows us is, like I said, kind of an ugly rivalry between two sisters. Um, If you remember last week, uh, what we saw was that uh, Jacob, the deceiver, had been deceived by Laban. Laban said, yeah, you can marry my daughter, this beautiful woman that you're so in love with, and then he pulled a switcheroo. The night of the wedding, it was Leah and not Rachel. Jacob was deceived. And at the end, at the end of our time last week, we saw in verse 30, chapter 29, that Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And over those next seven years, we'll see that his favoritism of one wife caused some bitter pain and some drama for everyone involved. Uh, What I want to look at first this morning is really look at Leah and and her experience. Look with me in verse 31. It says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. There's a lot more than just some ugly rivalries going on here. There's actually a lot of heartache. There's a lot of pain. There's hopes and dreams and longings that are unfulfilled, and we see these fleshed out in the naming of these children, not just the naming of Leah's, but also the naming of the other children that are to come. But we're going to miss seeing what needs to be seen if we only see the ugly human things going on here. Because there's not just a human experience, there's also divine action that is taking place. We see God's grace revealed against the dark backdrop of not just their rivalry and their competition, but also against the backdrop of their pain and their longing and their hurts. And what we're going to see is God's grace revealed. Notice what it says in verse 31. Leah is unloved, translates in the ESV that she was hated, the total opposite of what 
I would assume all wives want and desire. But notice what it says about God. It says that the Lord saw that Leah was hated, and he opened her womb. The Lord saw. If you've been with us through the study of Genesis, that'll ring a bell because you remember Abraham's surrogate wife, Hagar, the Egyptian, who was driven away into the wilderness. It says the Lord sees. He heard her. He remembered her. We saw there that God is a God of compassion, a God of grace who loves and cares for the unwanted, the unloved, the oppressed, the abandoned, the overlooked. And though Leah has been used as basically an economic opportunity by her father, and although Leah is now ignored and unloved by her husband, God sees her and God cares for her. And he opens her womb. He pours out blessing upon Rachel, the unloved, unattractive, or sorry, upon Leah, the one who was unloved and unattractive. But we see here that as Leah experiences this grace, as she experiences the compassion of God, as she experiences these blessings, these great blessings, her attention is still riveted on that thing that she wants more than anything else in the world. The thing that she thinks, if I can only have this, then I'll be happy. If only I had this, I could have joy and satisfaction and be at peace. And we see her desires and her longings reflected in the namings of her son. She called the name of her firstborn son Reuben, which in the Hebrew is literally, look, a son. Wow, look what I have. She says, the Lord has looked upon my affliction. She recognizes that. But then we see her desires communicated. She says, for now my husband will love me. Imagine the pain there for her. She knows her husband doesn't love her. Her younger, more attractive sister is the favorite. And she thinks that now that I've had a baby with him, maybe he'll care for me. Sadly, some people experience that same uh, kind of logic and that same disappointment today, thinking that having a child with someone will somehow cement love and, and establish a relationship. But sadly, in Leah's experience and in many people's today, it simply cannot do that. We see that her desires are unmet. She was sadly disappointed because she bears a son again, and she says, the Lord has heard that I am hated. The birth of Reuben did nothing to change her husband's affection for her. She bears another son, Simeon. But then again, she bears a son, a third son, in verse 34. It says, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. You have to remember that sons are so important in this time and in this culture. It wasn't just that she had some dream of being a mother and wanted to have lots of kids, although that's a good and noble thing. This was life and death for them. To have sons that could help carry on the family name meant honor. It meant that their family would not be snuffed out and their inheritance would not be distributed to whoever wanted it with the death of the patriarch. It meant their name would continue. It meant great honor. It meant security for them in their old age, that there would be sons to take care of them and meet their needs as they grew old and weak. But even more than that, remember the promise of God to the patriarchs. Through Abraham, there was supposed to be a great nation that would come. God had told Jacob himself there at Bethel that he would give him many offspring and give the whole land of Israel to those offspring, if there's no offspring, those promises go unfulfilled. Leah knew how important it was to have sons, how important for Jacob it was. And she had now given him three sons, and she thought, maybe now, maybe after these three, my husband will be attached to me. Therefore, his name was called Levi. 
We see then in verse 35, then she conceived again and bore a son. But now things are different. I think some disillusionment has started to set in. Between the time of Levi's birth and the time of this fourth son, she realized that having children isn't going to make her husband love her. The thing that she wanted most in all the world, the thing that she felt she needed, that hole in her heart was never going to be filled by Jacob. Notice what she does with the naming of this son. She says, this time, this time, something's different. Something's changed. This time, she says, I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. That's what that name means. He will be praised. And then she ceased bearing. We see here the pain and the, and the emptiness of human longing, but against the backdrop of that, we see the, the beauty of God's divine grace. And his grace is that he's given her more than just sons. God saw that Leah was hated. And you know what he did not do for her? He did not give her a loving husband. What he gave her was a new perspective. No longer is she focused on Jacob and what she couldn't get from him. Now in the naming of Judah, we see that she's focused vertically. She's looking to the Lord. And she's saying, God will be praised. The Lord is to be praised. Her perspective has been changed. God has done something not just for her, in that moment, he's done something that's of eternal significance. Consider this. Consider the honor that is bestowed upon Leah and the hope that will come through her offspring. These, this, these last two sons, number three and number four, Levi and Judah, they would become the namesakes for two tribes in Israel, the two most noble tribes of Israel, the two tribes of Israel that would produce two offices for that nation. Through the Levites would come the priests the ones who were to go before God into the temple and represent the people before God and make sacrifices so that the people could walk with God and have a relationship with him. What a noble privilege for the descendants of Leah, the one who is unloved, the one who is overlooked. Not just the Levites, not only would they be the priests, but consider Moses and Aaron, these two that would come from the tribe of Levi, some of the most famous men in all of Israel's history would come from Leah's womb. Consider Judah. Not only would the priests come through the Levites, but from the tribe of Judah would come the kings of Israel, especially David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. And through David would come an ultimate king, a Messiah, Jesus, who would be the savior not just for Israel, but for the world. The promise that God made to Abraham that through his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Through this messed up and complex family, God was going to fulfill that promise. And it wasn't through the beautiful Rachel and her children that this Messiah would come. No, it would come through Leah, through her son Judah. What an honor, what a place of privilege. But consider this, through Judah, this Jesus would come one whose love would never disappoint. He would be the perfect bridegroom for his church. Jesus loves with a love that is not conditional, he loves with a love that is perfect and eternal and satisfying and fills that hole in our hearts that no spouse could ever fulfill. God didn't just honor Leah. He actually provided what she needed, a perspective that God is the one to be praised. He's the one to be looked to. He's the one to be trusted and loved 
He's the one who provides joy and satisfaction and peace. And he was providing everything that Leah was longing for through that Messiah that would come through her son Judah. What a picture of God's grace for this woman who was overlooked, unloved, unwanted. God saw Leah. And he shows so much grace for her. And he gives her a new perspective. She's beginning to have a change of heart. She's not all the way there yet, as we'll see. But she's starting to understand that it's going to be an empty exercise looking to Jacob to meet those deepest needs. She's now able to look to God and praise him and receive with gratitude the gifts that he is giving her. But remember, Leah is not the only wife. What about Rachel? What about Rachel? You know, we saw that Jacob's father, um, Isaac, Isaac showed a lot of favoritism. He had twin boys, Jacob and Esau, and he favored one. He favored Esau. His wife, Rebecca, she favored Isaac. Jacob, rather. I get them mixed up. She favored Jacob. And, and that parental favoritism, obviously, is manifested here in this marital favoritism. And just as it caused strife between Jacob and Esau, the favoritism of Jacob with his two wives causes strife between these two sisters that he's now married to. We see in verse 1 that God is not the only one who is seeing what is happening with Leah. We saw in verse 31, the Lord saw Leah. In verse 1 of chapter 30, we see that now Rachel sees. It says, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. You see, there's something that Leah wanted more than anything else in the world. She wanted her husband's love. She wanted her husband's affection. And you know what? There's something that Rachel wanted more than anything else in the world. It wasn't her husband's love and affection. She had that. But she wanted something that she didn't have. She wanted children. And she said, give me children or else I die. It's a desperate statement, but it's also kind of an ugly statement. We see that she envied her sister. It's kind of ironic. We saw last week that Rachel is the one with the quote-unquote good body. She's the one that was beautiful in form and appearance, but she's actually jealous of her sister's fruitful womb. Sad irony there. There's another irony too. She says, give me children or I shall die, and Rachel actually will die years later, giving birth to a second son, Benjamin. But mostly this shows us something about her heart, that she is longing for something she doesn't have. And now we see that, you know, she's disillusioned. I mean, yeah, she's beautiful and she has her husband's love, but what good is life to her if she has no children? No honor. She's missing out on the joy of motherhood, and she wants that. And now it's Jacob's turn to be disillusioned. Look in verse 2. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. I want to back up just for a minute and, and look at Jacob for a second, too. I mean, Leah is the one who wants love from her husband and can't get it. And she's disillusioned. Rachel is the one who wants children, but she's barren. And she can't have children. She's having a hard time with that. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes now. If you remember last week, J Jacob also has that God-shaped hole in his heart. He had left his home. He'd been driven away seeking uh, to escape for his life because his brother was trying to kill him. He had never had the love of his father. His father, his father had always preferred Esau. And the love of his mother, which meant everything to him, his mother favored him, he had now lost that because he had to leave home. 
He lost his inheritance. He had nothing. He was penniless. He had only the clothes on his back. And so he shows up broke and alone in Haran. And then he meets this girl, Rachel. She's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen in, in his life. Beautiful in form and appearance. He goes to Laban and he says, I'll work for you seven years, which was four times as much as what a usual dowry would cost. And it says that it seemed to him like only a few days. He is lovesick. What's Jacob thinking? If only I can have her, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be comforted. That's what I need to fill this aching in my heart. Imagine the disillusionment for him. He goes through the wedding ceremony and the feast, and then he goes to bed thinking that now he's going to get what he's always wanted. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. His obsession and his, his blindness because of his, his intense desire, he would totally made himself vulnerable, vulnerable and susceptible to the deception of Laban, and now he had a wife that he didn't want. Talk about an empty feeling. Talk about the rug being pulled out from underneath you. He did end up getting Rachel. Laban had told him, complete the seven days, the week for this one, and then I'll give you Rachel also. All you have to do is work for me another seven years. Laban comes out winning in this deal. 14 years, he, he pawns off both of his daughters and gets 14 years of service, which is a huge value for him. And so maybe you think, well, maybe now Jacob will be happy. He got the beautiful girl he's always wanted. Everything's going to be happily ever after now, right? Wrong. This woman that is so beautiful that he thought would make him so happy is now the one causing drama, <laughs> and she's barren. And now Jacob is angry. This is not how he thought things were going to go. When he got that thing that he thought would make him happy, he's angry, and he rebukes Rachel. Notice what he says. What he says is true. In verse 2, he says, Am I in the place of God? who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb. You know, Jacob's statement has a lot of truth in it. Anytime you or I complain, when we are discontent, when we say, I must have this or I'm going to die, and we're not okay with what God has given or with what he has withheld from us, you know what we're doing? We're accusing God putting him on trial, saying he is not good and he is not wise because he has not done the thing that he ought to have done for me. And Jacob rightly tells Rachel, listen, sweetie, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with God. I can give you love. I can give you affection. I can give you honor. I can give you this privileged status as the favorite wife, but I can't give you children. Only God is able to open the womb. But Rachel is not easily Stopped. Then she said, in verse 3, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Just like Abraham's wife Sarah, uh, Rachel is resourceful. It was a custom of the day. It was not unprecedented. Uh, but that does not mean it was right. And Scripture is not advocating for this kind of approach on the contrary, later uh, we'll see you know, that this always causes problems. This is never a good idea. It is not in line with God's original design of one man and one woman. But nevertheless, Rachel says, here's my servant. You can have children through her. I'll adopt them as my own. And then I'll have this thing that I think I want that will make my life worth living. So in verse 4, she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me. 
Literally, he has vindicated me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Rachel does mention God. She says, God has judged me and heard my voice. But you can see that her perspective is not vertical yet. She's still focused on what she can get in this world, children. And she's focused on competing with her sister, saying, I've wrestled with her and I have prevailed. This is a, she's sounding a note of jealous triumph over her sister. She feels that she's the victim, believe it or not. She says, I've been vindicated, even though she's the favorite, even though she's the one who's most beautiful. She feels that she's the victim because she doesn't have children. And she is now one-upping her sister. Now I have kids too. Who's winning now, Leah? That is her attitude. It's ugly. It's born out of envy, and it's born out of an idolatrous desire for status and achievement and possessions in this world. But her triumph over her sister, if it's even that, is short-lived. In verse 9, Leah says, Anything you can do, I can do better. Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, She took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. She says two can play at that game. And then Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. We saw earlier that Leah is now praising the Lord. That doesn't mean that she's completely noble and that everything she does is wise. And whether she is blind to the reality that this is not ideal or whether this is motivated out of sin, we're not told exactly. But Leah follows the same example that her, her sister has set. She says, okay, I see your servant girl. I'll match that. She gives her servant to Jacob. And two sons are born. Gad means good fortune, good luck. I've been blessed, she says. And then she names the second Asher. Happy am I, for women have called me happy. There's really the same sentiment here that we find in Proverbs 31, where it says of the lady wisdom that her children rise up and call her blessed. This is really the same idea that Mary, the mother of Jesus, communicated when she said, from now on, all generations will call me blessed because of her son, Jesus. She says, For women have called me happy. The name Asher sounds like the Hebrew word for happiness. So we see here this bitter competition between the two sisters. And nothing's really getting better, is it? I mean, Jacob still doesn't love Leah. Rachel is still competing with her sister and now is in the hole again. She's down two more children. But in all of this, note that God is giving them children. God is the one who opens the womb. Why? Do these people deserve it? Do they deserve these blessings? No. But God has made a promise. He's made a promise that he would create a great nation through Abraham and his descendants. And even these people, with their sin, with their jealousies, with their idolatries, they're not able to thwart the plan of God. There is covenant grace at work here. Despite the sins and the failings and and, and the distracted hearts and the discontent of these people, aren't you thankful that God doesn't always give us what we deserve. He's so gracious. 
But you know what? The competition isn't over. We see a unique story here starting in verse 14. You know, to this point, neither of the sisters, at least what we're shown here, we haven't been shown any of their interaction with each other. We see Leah talking to herself and talking to God. We see Rachel talking to Jacob and offering her servant. Now we see Leah and Rachel interacting with each other. And it's not very pretty. Look in verse 14. It says, In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. You say, what in the world is going on here? Well, we have to understand that mandrakes, that's a fruit that was there in the region that was very prized in that time because supposedly it had great effect as sort of a fertility drug. So that kind of puts everything into context, that these women are still competing, and they both are still looking for what they want. Rachel wants children. She's witnessed now that her sister Leah has born four children, and her own servant has born two, and now Leah's servant has born two. She's still the only woman in the house who has no children of her own. And she's strategizing for how to get them. She's already tried berating Jacob and pleading with him, but he could do nothing for her. Now she's turning to superstition. She's thinking, maybe this miracle drug will help me, and then I'll get pregnant and have a son. She sees that Reuben, who is obviously Leah's oldest son, has found some while he's outside that day. So she asks Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And Leah is exasperated. She says, is it a small matter? Are you serious? Are you serious? You think it's not a big deal that you've taken away my husband? Think about it. For seven days, Leah had a husband, Jacob. But after those first seven days, Rachel entered into the picture. And since that day, her husband had been willing to give his body to his wife, father children through her. He was more than willing to do that. But he had not given his heart to her. He did not love her. And she says, do you not think it's a big deal that you've taken away that thing that I want, that thing that I need, and now you're going to take away my son's mandrakes too? And notice that Rachel doesn't argue. She knows that that's true, what she's saying. And here we see that Rachel is truly a son of Laban. Laban is a shrewd businessman. Laban is a negotiator. Laban is always wheeling and dealing. And now we see here that his two daughters, that the apple has not fallen far from the tree, that they reduce relationships to an economic opportunity. They reduce family to an opportunity to barter and negotiate. And notice how they negotiate. Trading in things that are sacred and should not be traded for. Rachel says this. She offers to trade for the mandrakes. Then, if you give me the mandrakes, she implies, he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. She says, I'll make you trade. I'll let Jacob spend some time with you if you give me your son's mandrakes. And Leah agrees. She wants the time and the attention and the affection of her husband. Rachel wants to get pregnant. 
they're both still looking for what they don't have, and they're trading to get it. When Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and informs him that his two wives have reached a deal. And Jacob may make some bad decisions from time to time, but he knows better than to get in between these two sisters who are feuding. If they've worked out a deal and they're at peace with each other, he's not going to mess things up. So he agrees. He goes with Leah for the night. But notice what happens. What happens is not what Rachel expected. Jacob lays with Leah that night instead of Rachel. He spends the night in her bed. And nothing more is said about the mandrakes. Do they work? They're not even mentioned. Verse 17, it says that God listened to Leah. Children don't come from some magic drug, from some superstition, from pleading with your husband. Children come from the Lord. And apparently, while Rachel is trying to find the miracle drug that will finally give her what she thinks will make her happy, apparently Leah is praying. She's speaking to God. And God listens to her, and she conceives and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Isaacar, which kind of rings a bell there again for the word wages or payment. Throughout this whole story with Jacob and Laban, we see payment for a bride, working in exchange for a marriage. We see women trading with each other. There's all this hiring language, and it's kind of echoed in that name there in verse 18. And the mandrakes apparently do nothing. But God does something. God gives Leah another son. And then verse 19, it's God's not done. Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. And it says in verse 21, afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Leah now has seven children, six sons and a daughter. In the scriptures, the number seven often symbolizes perfection or wholeness, completeness. Look what God has done for Leah. Not because of mandrakes, not because of negotiating, but because he's gracious, because he loves those who are overlooked and he cares for those who are oppressed and because he delights to work out his plans in ways that are unexpected and unlikely so that he will get all the glory. And Leah recognizes that all of this is from God. God has given me this endowment. These gifts come from God, the God that she has prayed to, the God that has blessed her. Leah sees that. But put yourself in Rachel's situation. How many years now has it been? She's seen her sister bear seven children. The two servants bear two each. That's a lot. That's a lot to deal with. Eleven pregnancies reminding you that you can't get pregnant. That's painful. But throughout those years of striving with her husband, negotiating for mandrakes, Has God written Rachel off? She hasn't done a lot. That seems that she deserves blessing. But look what God does in verse 22. Because God is gracious to those who don't deserve it. It says, then God remembered Rachel. He remembered Rachel. It doesn't mean that God had forgotten her. That he's like, oh yeah, Rachel exists. Maybe I should do something for her. No, in the scriptures, this word remember often carries with it the idea of God acting on behalf of someone in need acting in such a way as to provide deliverance or rescue. 
And God remembers Rachel. And notice this. It says, and God listened to her. God sees and God hears. He sees the unloved Rachel, the unloved Leah, and he hears the broken-hearted Rachel who's tried everything in the world. Her husband could not provide what she so desperately wanted and needed. The mandrakes did nothing. It was an empty superstition. Finally, it seems, after all these years, she has turned to the Lord, and she prays to him, and God affirms her faith. He remembers her, and he opens her womb. It says she conceived and bore a son. And notice what she says. She recognizes that this has nothing to do with Jacob, and it has nothing to do with any mandrakes. She says, God has taken away my reproach. God has lifted my shame from me. God has heard my prayers. God is the one who has the power to open a womb that has been barren for all these years. And she praises God. She says, God has taken away my reproach. Not only only is her faith affirmed as her prayers are answered, but her faith is also strengthened. As she looks to the future, she is hopeful that this is not the last God will do for her, that maybe things are changing. She called the son's name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. She looks forward in hope now. She looks forward in hope, not because her husband might be able to give her children, not because she might be able to negotiate or find some miracle drug. She has hope now because she knows that God is able. So she names her son in a statement of hope. May the Lord add to me another son. You see, Leah has a new perspective. And now Rachel has a new perspective as well. Against the backdrop of their their ugly rivalries and against the bitter pain of favoritism and lack, and even in spite of their idolatrous desires for things of this world that they think will satisfy, God shows grace. God shows grace not by necessarily immediately giving them what they want, but by teaching them to look to him instead. And that's really the lesson that you and I need to learn from this this morning. I mean, fill in the blank for you. What is it, if I were to ask you, that you would say, if I could only have blank, then I would be happy. Maybe you'd say, if I were only in a different financial situation, then I could finally be at peace and sleep at night. Maybe you can relate with Leah. You could, and you might say, if only I had the love maybe of a parent or of a spouse who's cold or of a spouse that you don't have. If I only had the love of my children who don't always love me the way that I feel I need. If I only had a friend, this, the certain type of friend that I've never had, the best kind of friend, if I only had human affection, then I would be happy. Maybe it's a health challenge. If I could only get strong and feel good again, then I could be happy. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's a certain career. If I could only get out of this job that I hate and get into that job that I really want, then I could make more money, then I could be fulfilled, then I could be happy. What is it for you? What's the thing that you think if you could only achieve it, then you would be happy? See, the reality is we all have that hole in our hearts And too many of us spend our lives, like Leah and Rachel, negotiating, working, striving, straining, reaching, compromising, 
trying to do anything we can to get that thing that we think we need. The reality is this. There is nothing in this world that can ultimately satisfy you the way you want. There's nothing. And you can spend your life in futility looking for it. And too many of us look in all the wrong places. And when we look in the wrong places, when we worship saviors that cannot save, we always experience disappointment and disillusionment. The wife that Jacob thought would make his dreams come true didn't. The husband whose love Leah thought would satisfy her thirsty soul didn't happen. And even the children that Rachel thought would really be the answer, in the end, she finds that it's by looking to God that you can really find hope. Maybe you have a perspective this morning that's horizontal. You're really running hard after things in this world. The only thing that can satisfy is Jesus. David says in the Psalms, one thing have I sought after. One thing have I desired, he says, and that will I seek. And it's not a spouse. It's not human love. It's not wealth, riches, success, approval, health, pleasure. He says, one thing have I sought after that I may dwell in the court of the Lord. That can gaze upon his beauty, that I could be in his temple. David knows that true joy and true satisfaction only comes from God. He's the only one that's able to meet that need in your heart. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Jeremiah chapter 9. I want you to see this. There's only one thing that matters. God says in Jeremiah 9, 23, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Nothing else matters. Nothing. And here's why. What I'm not trying to convince you of this morning is that God is a miracle pill who can make you feel better and make you happy. You see, there's more than that. Yes, God is the only one who can satisfy. Yes, God is the only one who can give you peace and joy. But God wants to give you more than just immediate emotional contentment, peace, joy, satisfaction. You see, the reason God can give you immediate joy, peace, and contentment, and satisfaction is not because he's here to be a divine bellhop and give you things in the world to make you happy. The reason is because God delivers us from hell by the sending of his son Jesus. You see, being single is not hell. Not having children, being childless, that is not hell. Bankruptcy is not hell. Loneliness is not hell. 
Even the worst physical pains and sicknesses and illnesses that we deal with is not hell. Hell is hell. And only God can deliver you from hell. And when you know you've been delivered from hell, because you have the love of God, forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, then you can be happy, you can be content, you can have joy no matter if you lose everything else in the world. That's, why, that's what Paul said in the book of Philippians. Um, Philippians chapter 3. Flip there. I want you to see this too. Paul knew this. And it changed the way he lived his life. It changed his desires. It changed his pursuits. It changed everything from him. for him. It was a life-changing, transcendent truth that radically altered the way he thought, what he loved, what he lived for. Philippians chapter 3. says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything? Even the best kind of marriage? Even the healthiest, happiest children in the most united, peaceful home? Even the most satisfying and rewarding career? Even the praise and the recognition of people? Even health and strength, the ability to be independent and care for yourself. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, Jesus is able to save us from hell. Jesus, by his death on the cross, is able to cleanse us from sin. Jesus is the one who comes and says, whoever is hungry or thirsty if he comes to me, will never hunger or thirst again. Jesus is the one who's able to satisfy, but more than that, who is also able to save. And when you get a hold of that, when your heart gets a hold of that, it'll change everything for you. When you seek your satisfaction in Christ and you find salvation in Christ, you will say with Paul that everything else is lost. I'm able to enjoy whatever God gives as a gift because I don't need it. I don't depend on it for my happiness. You see, if you do look to a spouse or to children or to your health or to money or to yourself for some sort of satisfaction, whatever you look to, you will crush with the weight of expectation because none of those other things are good gods. None of those other things can bear the weight of all your needs and all your dreams and all your hopes and all your expectations. None of those things can ultimately heal all your hurts, all your longings, but Jesus can. His shoulders are broad enough. He was able to take your sin on those shoulders, on the cross, and he now offers you eternal life. He says, come to me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, come to me, those who are thirsty, and I will give you water that springs up into eternal life. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want to tell you that nothing else in the world can provide you satisfaction and nothing else in the world can provide for you, more importantly, salvation. If you do know Jesus this morning, perhaps you need to take a hard look at your own heart and consider what is it that I'm looking to for ultimate joy and peace and comfort? And have I devalued 
Jesus? Have I devalued his death and resurrection? Have I devalued the eternal life that I have in him because I'm looking to all these other things? C.S. Lewis, in his writings, captures really the essence of this idea. He says, too often, we're like children who play around in the mud making pies because we have no idea what's meant by a vacation at the beach, at the sea. We're content with so little when we could have so much. He says, if I find in myself a desire which nothing on earth can satisfy, perhaps it's because I was made for another world and not for this one. And he's right. He's right. Perhaps you need to reorient yourself this morning like Leah did and like Rachel did at the end of their experience and look up and place your faith in God and not in a job, not in a person, not even in your own ability to make your life what you want it to be. But look to him. Look to him. It's good news for us this morning that we have a God who's patient with us who keeps his promises to provide what we really need. He brought Jesus the Messiah through this messed up family. One day Jesus would come, and like Leah, he would be unwanted. Like Leah, he would be despised and rejected by men. He would come into his own. His own would not receive him. Instead, they would nail him to a cross. But through Jesus, you and I can find satisfaction and salvation. God is a God of grace who sees he hears and he knows what we really need. And he's provided it for us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So look to him this morning. And may we seek to always look to him as we deal with all the ups and downs of lives, the pains, the hurts, the disappointments. When we have Jesus, we have all that we need. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're so gracious that throughout history, you kept your promises and worked out your perfect plan to bring redemption in unexpected ways, through unexpected people. We're thankful, God, that you've chosen people like us, often unlikely and unexpected. You didn't choose the wise or the strong, but you chose the weak and the foolish so that we would not boast in anything except you. Lord, we want to boast in you this morning, boast in your grace, boast in how satisfying you are. We want to boast in your wisdom, in knowing better than to give us what our idolatrous hearts want. Often you deprive us of those things that we think we need so that we can have a healthy dose of disillusionment, so that we can be awakened to the reality of our true need, our deeper need, and that's our need to know you. God, help us to see clearly what our real need is and therefore to see clearly the true solution in Jesus. God, change hearts this morning for your glory. Satisfy us with your steadfast love so that we can tell the world about how great you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.